Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Thanks for joining. My name is Brad Johnson, and I'm the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel. In each episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint podcast, it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. In this episode, I talk with Ian Cron. He's a best-selling author, nationally recognized speaker, and my guess is you haven't run across this one before. He's both a psychotherapist and an Episcopal priest. Get ready for some serious psychology and how to get into your prospects' heads as we dig into Ian's most recent book, The Road Back to You, and into an ancient personality typing system with an uncanny accuracy in describing how human beings are wired, both positively and negatively. It's called the Enneagram, and it's scary how accurate it is. I'm guessing like me prior to a few months ago, you've never heard of it before. However, its origins date back hundreds of years. And for those of you who've ever taken a Colby, a Disc Profile, Strength Finder, Meyer Briggs, or dozens of other personality profiles I've seen in our industry, especially if you happen to use them in your hiring process, as many of our clients do, this may be your favorite show to date. In fact, Ian set up the ability to do a free assessment for all of our listeners and your staff if you'd like. So now might be a good time to hit the pause button and go out and download Ian's free tool, which breaks down all nine personality types from the Enneagram and also offers the link for the free assessment to see what your number is. It took me about five minutes to take it and figure out my number. It's available at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 18. That's one eight. Also, for many of you listening on mobile, most include show notes now. Simply swipe to them and it will be linked at the top of the notes for your convenience. Okay, so hopefully you're coming back from grabbing your free assessment from Ian and have a decent idea what your number is as this conversation is going to dig deep on key motivations for each number and how to best communicate and interact with them. Obviously, very important stuff when you're sitting across from prospects or when you're leading a team. Here's a quick overview of what we cover in this conversation. Very early on, Ian shares a conversation he had with a friend who just so happens to run a hedge fund and how knowing a difficult client's Enneagram number helped him better know how to communicate in their meetings. It actually eventually led to this client moving more of their assets over to him. If you only have time to listen for just a few minutes, it's right at the start and definitely a story worth listening to. From there, we cover the nine Enneagram personality types and how they can help us recognize patterns of behavior in our prospects, clients, teams, spouses, or anyone else we may encounter. Later on, we get to why self-awareness may be the single most important factor to your success and how financial advisors can use the Enneagram to better interact face-to-face with clients. And we wrap with how to avoid the workaholic trap as a high-achieving financial advisor. You guys are going to love this conversation with Ian, so I'm going to get to the interview. One last reminder, if you haven't already taken a few minutes to download the Enneagram cheat sheet Ian shared, it's available free. And you can also take his assessment to figure out your Enneagram number. It will get you a little bit better context of this chat, and it's available at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 18. Or in most of your mobile podcast players, you can swipe to the show notes and simply click the link at the top of the post. As always, you can find everything, including links to books mentioned, people discussed, a full transcription of the show, and everything else in our show notes as well. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Ian Cron. Welcome to another episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. 
I'm excited to have my buddy Ian Cron on here joining us today. Welcome, Ian. Thank you. Glad to be here. So it was really cool how we got the chance. I wish I got to meet all my friends this way. The first time we ever met was out at Blackberry Farm in the foothills of the uh, Smoky Mountains. So our mutual friend, Michael Hyatt, set up a little marriage retreat. My wife and I were out there end of 2016. And then you were kind of the, you were the guest of honor. You walked us through a couple of days of really the Enneagram, digging in there, the road back to you, your most recent best-selling book. So I just thought we'd start out just because obviously we're doing a podcast here for financial advisors. Can you speak through really the Enneagram and what that is and explain it for a lot of novices because I honestly had no clue what it was until we had a chance to meet. Yeah. Well, the Enneagram is a personality typology, not dissimilar, I suppose, in terms of metrics to the Myers-Briggs or the DISC or the Strength Finders, you know, instruments that people are familiar with in the business world. In my opinion, what makes it particularly useful and interesting is the Enneagram helps teams of people understand who they are at their best and who they are when they're under stress and when they're feeling great. Lots of other metrics basically view the human personality as being somewhat static. The Enneagram takes into account that it's fluid, you know, it's situational, it's adaptive. And so when it comes to trying to, in this world that's increasingly globalized, you know, you really have to learn how to collaborate in new ways now. And so understanding people's personalities helps you eliminate drag coefficients. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful that way. Well, I just wish after spending a couple days at the retreat, and it was about a day and a half of you leading a live really experience for us where you were walking our small group through really what each of the numbers meant, how they interacted with each other, as you said, how fluidly they, you can kind of move from one to the next. Yeah. I learned more about my wife that I've been married to over 10 years now in two days, I felt like, than uh, yeah. previous 10 years. So I wish we would have had this at the front end, but can you speak to, you shared a little bit on the background where the Enneagram originated from. And I completely agree with you. I've taken the Colby, I've taken Strength Finder, I've taken DISC. I've never seen a test or a framework that really sums up, right. I guess, how people interact with each other like the Enneagram does. So can you share a little bit more background where it came from, how it came to be? Sure. Well, I do agree with you. It's uncannily accurate. The first time I encountered it, I was in grad school doing my counseling degree to become a psychotherapist. And I have to say that I remember reading and going, well, gosh, you know, I've spent several years studying the human personality, and this basically is more useful a tool than anything I'd learned in the classroom. The Enneagram's origins are somewhat unknown. It's actually quite old. It was an oral tradition until the 1970s when people first began to publish it. And what's happened over time, as is true with all oral traditions, it's been influenced by lots of other disciplines, in the case of the Enneagram, obviously modern psychology has really developed the framework into something that's very useful for organizations, churches, families, marriages. It has tremendous application across a wide array of situations that people find themselves in. Mm -hmm. And let's take this through the lens of financial advisors. That's the vast majority of my listenership here. Let's just go to that story you shared with me right before we started recording here. I love, and maybe this is a good lead into a quick overview of each of the numbers and how kind of the individual characteristics, but you were sharing that you were having a conversation with a hedge fund manager that oversaw 25 billion or so of assets. So doing pretty well for himself. 
Can you just share the conversation, how the Enneagram kind of came into play there? Well, interestingly, this is a guy who graduated from Yale, then went to Harvard Business School. So this is a guy who had a lot of experience in business, had worked at Goldman Sachs for many years, and then launched out on his own. He came to me one day and he said, I have a client that's really, really thorny, and I just need to get some advice on him because he represents a big chunk of our business, and I want to get more. You know, so I'm having a meeting with him and he is very combative. He's aggressive. He's confrontational. Right. And he's just a terrifically powerful presence and personality. This guy was sort of a patent type, right? Lead me, follow me or get out of the way. Mm -hmm. And so he said, what do I do? And I said, well, tell me what your sort of approach to this guy has been before. And he says, well, I'm very diplomatic. You know, he's tons of questions. He gets right up in my face. I'm very, very diplomatic with him. I try to calm him down. I said, well, based on what you've told me, spent about half an hour describing the guy. I said, based on what you told me, I'm going to bet this guy is an eight on the Enneagram, right? There are nine types on the Enneagram, nine basic core personality types. And I said, so I think he's an eight, which is called the challenger. Challengers are blunt to a fault. They don't tend to trust people until they've proven they're trustworthy. The way that they will try to get to a place where they trust you is they're going to confront you a lot. They're going to keep testing you and testing you and testing you. Because Ace believe that if they can get into a fight a little bit with you, a verbal skirmish, that if you have a hidden agenda, it'll come out, that you'll show your cards. Mm-hmm. And they also won't respect you unless they know that you can stand your ground with them. So I said, when you go into this meeting, I said, obviously, keeping in mind, you want to be respectful. When this guy powers up on you, you need to meet him with every bit as much power as he throws at you. And I said, if you do, he'll relax. He'll realize, okay, I got another big dog on the porch. I'm not the only big dog here. I got another one. And then he'll be ready to do business with you. Sure enough, that's what happened. What's interesting about that in our small group out at BlackBerry, the two eights I remember Mm -hmm. in the group were both CEOs. You know, that hard charger leader type of personality. And yeah. uh, it's funny because as you were saying that, they were nodding their heads. I remember in the group that that's kind of yeah. their personality type. Yeah. Usually their wives are elbowing them in the side too uh-huh. while this is all going on. Eights and threes tend to be very aligned with the American stereotype or the American image of what a great leader or CEO is of a company. Jack Welch, for example, was an eight. And his nickname was Neutron Jack. <laughs> Can you imagine? There's a name to be proud of. But he also brought GE's bottom line up to its all-time high, I think, or, you know, at that time. So he was effective, but he wasn't necessarily a great relationship builder either. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're healthy in your number, every number is great. If you're unhealthy and not self-aware, you can go through your work world banging guardrail to guardrail being very, very self-defeating in your behaviors. So let's go. Obviously, I've got a little more experience here than I would guess the vast majority of listeners. One thing that we're going to make sure we put in the show notes is, I believe on your website, iancron.com, you have an assessment. Very quick, I think 40, maybe 50 questions where very quickly you can get to your number, what your number is. Well, you'll get into the neighborhood, you know, like any self-report assessment, whether it's Myers-Briggs, Colby, anything else like that. It all depends a little bit on the self-awareness of the person taking it, you know. I strongly recommend that people who have an interest in the Enneagram actually read about it. But the assessment is a good vestibule into the house. 
Mm -hmm. So we'll put that in the show notes. And I have read your book, The Road Back to You. I've read it on the flight out to BlackBerry. Um, Mm -hmm. So I highly suggest that those that take the assessment actually dig in because the book will expand on what those numbers actually Mm -hmm. mean. Oh yeah. For the listeners here, could you maybe, uh, whatever order makes sense, just kind of go around the wheel and give us a real quick overview of what each of those numbers look like? Sure. Well, let's do it this way. Let's start with two, three, and four, and then we'll work our way around because there are triads inside the Enneagram that might be helpful to people. Two, okay. threes, and fours are all in what's called the feeling or heart triad. These people are the most image conscious numbers on the Enneagram. Twos are called the helpers. They have a need to be needed, right? These are people who are the most interpersonal of all people, warm, compassionate, supportive. They are always available to be of service to other people. When they're healthy, they're altruistic and they're giving. When they're unhealthy, there's always a string attached. And the string is, I'll help you if we kind of make this quid pro quo arrangement that you'll help me when I need it without my even needing to ask. Threes are called the performer or the achiever. And I bet you have a lot of these folks in your audience right now. These are folks who are high achieving people, oftentimes found in upper management of corporations. They're great in sales, tremendous salespeople. The achiever has a real need to succeed. They tend to believe that people are valued for what they do more than for who they are inside. And that can really drive or motivate their behavior in some really significant ways. For example, threes will often adapt an image in order to suit or fit the crowd. Now, that can come in really handy when you're doing sales, but eventually you can get lost in your own performance and lose any sight of who you are actually are as a human being. You actually begin to believe you are the image that you're projecting at any given moment. Threes are people who are fixated on accomplishing goals. They like specific goals, very clear goals, And they like to get them completed in as quick and efficient a manner as is possible. Unfortunately, if they're unhealthy and not very self-aware, what they'll do is they'll cut corners or take shortcuts in order to accomplish those goals, which can really sacrifice the quality of their work. But boy, when they're healthy, they really focus not on just their own success and flaunting their own success, which they can do when they're not in a good space. They focus on other people becoming successes. When that happens, they're inspiring leaders who bring out the best in other people and their teams. Fours, I doubt you have very many of these. Fours tend to gravitate toward the arts, and they're highly creative people. They have a need to be unique and kind of special and to stand out. They love to be perceived as being unique. Fours are sometimes called the tragic romantics. They believe that They need to really be special in order to compensate for what they perceive to be a hidden flaw or something that they're missing that other people have, which they really would like to get, but they don't even really know how to name it. But out of that can pour some amazing literature and music and art. And without fours in the world, you wouldn't have people like Meryl Streep or Ingmar Bergman or you know, some of these great artists that we spend a lot of our time listening to or watching. So those are the three in the heart triad. They're very based around their feelings. Take the world in through their feelings. Five, six, and sevens are in the head or the thinking triad. Fives are called the investigators. Think about people like, for example, Bill Gates would probably be a five leader. Fives love to understand 
they really need to understand and know things. They are hoarders of information and knowledge. Fives are the people that could spend a whole day reading a book or trawling the internet. They fall down the wormhole of the internet and spend days researching topics, you know, for hours upon hours. They're usually very, very smart in a particular niche area of their own. Okay. So, I mean, I've got to jump in here because yeah. I'm going to assume an engineer mindset would fit very yes. well to a five. Yes. Highly analytical and very private, awkward in social situations. I need a lot of solitude and too much social interaction with other people just really drains them. Really drains them. So let's dig in here because it's kind of like an inside joke in financial services where it's like, I, I, I got the engineer that came in and he pulled out his seven page long printout of a spreadsheet. He'd analyzed every single product in our industry and he wanted to know contract line number 42. So you gave the example earlier how you would meet an eight in an appointment. So if you were a financial advisor and we want to help everyone, and how would you deal with somebody that's a five that really wants to dig deep on all the information if you were dealing with them face-to-face? Well, no. Again, what determines your type is not traits or characteristics. It's the underlying motivation that drives it, okay? Mm-hmm. In my experience, for example, it's true that engineers, highly analytically-minded people often are fives. But the person you just described could easily be a one, the perfectionist. Mm. They could be a six who's a risk management person, right? Who's always imagining worst case scenarios. And so they want to know everything so that in the event something wrong happens, they'll know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. But if they were a five, you'd be more likely, I think, in a corporate setting, if you were in a bigger setting, it would be the guy who's designing the software that's, you know, in the black box that's making your investments. You know, if you're doing that kind of trading, for example. You know, coders would most likely be fives. They're introverts. They would like to put as many buffers between you and them as possible, right? So that they don't drain all their energy on social interactions. Now, if you're going to approach a five, think to be careful with fives is they're very, very private. And they don't like intrusive questions. They really kind of feel the whole world's a little intrusive. And they are very minimalistic in their lifestyles. They require that they feel independent and self-sufficient, self-contained. Don't be offended when a five leaves your office party early. It's not personal. It's just that the external stimulus, the noise, the crowd, the whole thing is overwhelming to them. And they just are losing their inner resources to maintain connection with other people. In those settings, they'd rather just disappear. They could just be invisible, mm-hmm. you know? Let's move on to sixes, though. Okay. Um, yeah. Sixes are called the loyalist, and they're wonderful human beings. But as is true with all these numbers in the this triad, five, six, seven, these are fear-based people. We think that there are more sixes in the world than any other type that's speculative, but based on what we know from conferences and other data and research, we think that's the case. Sixes are worst-case scenario planners. They're the devil's advocate in all your meetings. So let's say you put out a plan, right? And do you know what your number is, by the way? I'm a seven. Oh, okay. My so, wife is a six. Let me just tell you what happened. <laughs> well, it's a good balance. I think actually. I know where you're going here. It's Go a great it. balance, but this happens in business or in marriage, right? So the seven comes rolling in the door with all this optimism and all these plans. And a whiteboard is heaven to a seven. Give them a marker or a whiteboard. They just can't stop. 
And they just believe everything is possible, everything. And the sixth is the eternal pessimist, when they're unhealthy particularly. They are worst case scenario planners. They always are imagining and planning for the worst possible disaster. They're scanning the horizon. They tend to catastrophize. They really wrestle with decision-making. They don't trust their own inner compass when they're not doing well. So they will go out and when faced with a decision and just ask advice from everybody. Do you think this is the right decision? Am I making the right thing? They'll ask the guy at the post office. They'll ask their mother. They'll ask everybody. But I'll tell you, in a corporate setting, especially if you're in an entrepreneurial mode or starting a new project, you don't want to necessarily bring them in on the first couple of dream team meetings, but you definitely want them in the room around the third or fourth one, because otherwise guys like you will go charging forward without someone raising their hand and going, this is a good idea, but I don't know if we have the cash reserves to make it happen. And then everyone in the room, if you do it too early in the process, everyone in the room will go, you know, they'll just deflate. Uh But when you're on the border of saying, okay, green light, let's go. You do need someone in the room who's going to ask hard questions about the viability of what it is that you're about to do. So they have great value. And that's that's true with every number. Can you see how important it would be to, I think of the time it saves and the interpersonal friction that you can avoid if you know this to be true about people, right? I mean, it's just so helpful. It was amazing just two days. And now, well, going back to the indecision, my wife's a six and it would really annoy me at times, right? Mm -hmm. But now I know the reasoning behind why those questions are happening. Right. It's not because she doesn't trust you. And she's, that's not the case. She just, in many ways, wants to know that you have the big picture in mind and what she's supposed to do should something go wrong. And now, thanks to you, she calls me out every time I say, well, the good news is, Mm -hmm. (laughs) going back to my seven. Yeah, yeah, right. So sevens are called the enthusiasts. My son's a seven. I love them when they're healthy and in a good space. They're dynamite. They're deep, deep, wonderful I always say about my son that every day is a snow day, even in the summer. I mean, every day he just gets up just believing the best is around the corner. So if sixes manage fear with pessimism, sevens manage their fear with optimism, right? It's sort of a compensatory attitude toward life, you know, toward dealing with their own anxiety. So sevens have a need to avoid uncomfortable or unpleasant emotions, you know, like boredom stuck or routine are the depth of a seven. So if you got a seven is working for you, the last thing you want to do is put them in a management position most of the time, unless they're very healthy or unless they have a great chief administrative officer around, you know, or someone else that people can report to because they're dreamers and they're great at the startup end of the project. Sevens are great at reframing. So for example, if something goes wrong, A seven, rather than dealing with guilt or shame or blame or any other uncomfortable emotion in the moment, right, will reframe it as a positive. I mean, in a heartbeat, right? So if they make a, this is a silly example, I suppose, but let's say they ink a bad deal and suddenly they just lost $5 million, right? The moment they say it, the moment they admit it, first thing words out of their mouth will be, but man, I've really learned a lot. Isn't that great? I mean, this is going to be great for the firm because it's going to get us back to the days when we were really struggling. Remember those days? You know, and suddenly you're like, how did you just make that into a good thing? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but again, 
they're dynamite around because they bring so much energy to teams and so much positive spirit. I just did a corporate consultation maybe a year ago for a company that had a seven in senior management. And it was a real problem because he'd been in that job too long. It had become routine to him. And he was just ready for the next adventure. Sevens are always ready for the next adventure. They're always thinking in the future, always planning the new escapade, the new exciting thing that's coming up. And there was nothing on his radar that indicated there was anything like that in the future. So it just really helped to move him or their company go, okay, we need to move this person into a new position overseeing a brand new launch of a new product. And suddenly the guys like lit up like a light bulb. Mm. So that's that fear triad. Do you have questions about those? Yeah, a quick question. I think I remember this from our retreat. Mostly, did you say sales would be a lot of threes and a lot of sevens or am I making that up? Three sevens and eights are great in sales. Eights as well. Okay. Yeah, it, they're all aggressive numbers. Aggressive, not necessarily in a negative sense. It just means they move out toward people very, very easily. They walk in a room with a lot of confidence. Threes particular, if they know how to play the part, you know, like a three can walk into a bar and sell life insurance and he'll roll up his sleeves and sit at the bar and start cussing and watching the television and talking football until the guy behind the bar thinks this guy's one of us and buys insurance. He'll go down the street to a church and then he'll put his tie on, roll his sleeves back down and walk in and, you know, walk up to the secretary and she'll say, oh, can I help you? And yeah, I'd like to see the pastor. Oh, good. And how are you? And he'll say, blessed. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, he's just super spiritual. Chameleon uh, was the word that you used with three. Yeah. It went very well, Goldman, right? Yeah. If you've read the book Emotional EQ, you know that Goldman would refer to those people when they're unhealthy as social chameleons. Mm-hmm. Social chameleons. But, you know, sevens and eights, man, they walk in a room and they own it too for different reasons. Well, I guess we're two-thirds of the way there if you just want to do a quick sure. I'll do a fast one. I've already talked about eights a little bit. They're the challengers. We can probably skip past that. So I've already sort of spoken about them. Nines are called the peacemakers. Peacemakers have a need to avoid conflict at all costs. You're not going to find a lot of peacemakers at the high end of corporations. Usually they aspire to go pretty much no higher than middle management. And the reason is that they don't want a lot of the conflict that's inevitable if you're running a company you know, or a firm. You got to fire people. You've got to sit down and do you know, 360s that uh, may involve a lot of criticism or disagreement. And nines want to avoid that at all costs. But what nines bring to the table is they are remarkable peacemakers. So they can reconcile things or people or issues that are to everybody else, appear irreconcilable. You know, people sometimes think Bill Clinton was a three. And I'm pretty sure he was a nine, which goes to show you that, you know, nines can be in positions of great authority if they're healthy. But what made his nineness apparent to me was his ability to forge deals. I mean, this guy could forge deals, not just across, you know, difficult lines, but Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Maybe if we'd give it, if he'd had time, he could have, you know, taken on Palestine and Israel. I mean, he just knew how to sit at a table and see the world through and everybody's point of view through their eyes to the point, by the way, that everyone at the table, Leon is a Podesta, I guess, or Panetta once said that Clinton would get five people at a table. And he was so good at seeing their point of view on a particular issue that not only did people feel like he empathized and saw their point of view, they actually agreed that he actually agreed with them. He was so good at it. So that when he finally made a decision among those five people, and the other four people that didn't win their point of view wasn't taken, they felt betrayed. (laughs) 
as though he'd lied to them. And it's like, I didn't lie. I just was able to see everything from your point of view. I understood your argument. Once you call the perfectionist, if you want your airline pilot to be a perfectionist, you want your pharmacist to be, sometimes they're called reformers. I think it's probably a better word in some ways because they're always trying to improve or reform the world. They are the people that when they walk in a room, the first thing they see is what's wrong or what's out of order. First thing they see is the mistake. Then they don't mind telling you that you've made a mistake and how you can correct it, which doesn't always make them very popular when they're not self-aware. You want one to be your tax accountant. You want them to be the person that is your contract lawyer that does not miss a word. They are meticulous, detail-oriented people. Where they run into trouble is they think their way is the right way and there is no other way sometimes. And so they can be inflexible and rigid and people experience them as judgmental and overly critical at times. I can think of the one in our group was an attorney. So spot on there. Yep. But a likable attorney. Don't be late. Whatever you do, don't be late. (laughs) Just kind of taking that overview that you've now given us on the Enneagram, could you apply it to a, a couple areas? Let's go with most of our listeners, once again, advisors, every single week, their day-to-day is face-to-face interactions, oftentimes one-to-one or the advisor to husband-wife. Let's say they just go out, they do the quick assessment, they figure out what their number is. Let's say they pick up the book or just from listening the last few minutes here, they've got a good overview of the different numbers and how kind of their high level, how they work. How could they apply that to better interacting face-to-face with clients, just knowing that? Yeah, oh gosh. Well, first of all, just in a general sense, we tend to assume that everybody sees the world the way that we do, that they process information the same way that we do, that they are interacting with the world the same way we are, and they are not. That There are at least nine different ways of seeing the world. And inside of each of those personality styles, right, there's an infinite variety of sort of expressions of the same personality style. So you first walk to walk into a meeting assuming that whoever you're meeting with, there's a high probability they do not see the world the way that you do. Absolutely not. I mean, can you see how different it would be to meet at a meeting with a one versus a seven? I mean, those are two very different people. And if you want to serve them, it would behoove you to try and identify the way that they see the world. The Enneagram can give you some clues as to how you might be able to do that. You know, I would also say to financial advisors as they meet one-on-one with people is to understand that some of those different personality styles take a while to make decisions. They're not instant decision makers. Do a lot of listening You know, I mean, I think this is just basic sales 101, right? Like, it's much better to spend a lot of time listening to people than it is selling people. People who tend to, you know, oversell from out of the gate tend to either arouse suspicion, right? Or to make some of those withdrawing types back away from the table a little bit. Everybody, there's not a soul in the Enneagram or in the world that doesn't want you to listen to their concerns and anxieties, not one, or what their needs are, you know? Nobody ever will accuse you of listening too much and taking notes. And just know that there are basically probably three fundamental emotions that all of us are trying to manage all the time. Fear, right? Anger, and or shame, really. Feelings, Everybody's trying to cope with all three of those dynamics going on at the same time. They all have different management systems for them. 
So I can't recommend highly enough to people in sales to know these different personality styles and their expressions. And once you do, you really are advantaged. You really are advantaged. And, you know, look, we're not just trying to make a sale. We're trying to improve the quality of people's lives. Everything that a financial advisor does has so many effects in so many areas of an individual's life, in their marriage, for their children, their livelihoods. I mean, it's a great responsibility. And so the burden is on you, really, as an advisor, to serve your customers well, to know them well, and to make decisions in light of who they are. Well, I think the the thing I take, whether it's having a better marriage, which is why you know we met originally, or better serving your clients, I wrote a quote down that I loved. I think this is an original from you. I don't think you've stole this from anyone. I think this was... Well, I'll let you know. I'm good at it. All right. Let me know. You said we're looking at the same screen watching a different movie. Okay. Let me tell you who that is. Okay. Who is that? (laughs) I was going to credit it to you. Oh, well, you can. But I could take it. But I'm going to be honest here. So I have a driver who, when I go to the airport, when I'm in New York, we have a home in Connecticut as well as here in Tennessee. So when he drives me from my home in Connecticut to LaGuardia, I mean, he's a piece of work. He's just a piece of work. And so I, I was explaining, you know, I mean, I'm with this guy a lot. So we're talking about the Enneagram. And he already knows his numbers. So we have a lot of conversations about this, right? So he has this whiskey voice. He's a recovering alcoholic. And he, one day he says to me, you know, Ian, it's like we're all in a theater looking at the same screen, watching a different movie. <laughs> and I said, you got to pull the car over so I can write that down. And that's, <laughs> that's going in my book, man. That's perfect. It was great. Well, there you go. We found the origination. But it's so true. I do it, you know, dealing with advisors. It's funny, as you were saying, the eternal optimist, I could see how that could wear on people. Because sometimes there are negative things that come out and you have to acknowledge them and be real about them. And uh, remember, you know, as I said, the Enneagram takes into account that these personality styles are dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. So you can be anywhere within your number at a range from healthy to unhealthy, right? When you're healthy, every single one of these numbers is awesome when they're healthy. Every single one is great and needed inside of an organization or in different roles. When you're unhealthy, you're a mess, really. If you're at that lower average to unhealthy range, and you're all the time moving up and down in there in the course of the day. I mean, you get a 10 o'clock call and be real healthy all of a sudden, and then get a you know something, a meeting at three in the afternoon and find yourself in that really unhealthy range. So you know, if you can know what you look like in health and when you're not being very healthy, you can spot it in real time and begin to make adjustments to your behaviors and your way of being with other people. That's the joy of it is it just gives you freedom to make different choices you didn't have when you were running on automatic. Yeah, it actually leads. I wanted to make sure we talked about this quote because you shared a quote that I can literally say change my life and my perspective. My wife and I have talked about it multiple times since mm-hmm. we left. And it was this one. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Yes. And digging in on that, just going back to healthy and unhealthy, a lot of the difference between healthy and unhealthy from my experience is how big of a space do you have between that stimulus and response? Yeah. If you actually give yourself some time to think about it, mm-hmm. usually you can start to lean towards the healthy side of that. But yeah. do you want to dig in on that? I just think that that's a quote to live by. Yeah, sure. 
It's a tremendous quote. It's Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor and psychologist, just a genius. If you don't have self-awareness, which is what the Enneagram gives you, affords you, right? You are constantly living in a state of reactivity, always. You're just reacting. You are just on autopilot inside the confines of your own personality, limitations of your personality. And so what the Enneagram does, hopefully, is help you to identify those aspects of your personality that no longer serve you the way that they did in childhood, that you need to disidentify with so that you can live into your full potential, right? So when you're in reactivity, the space between stimulus and response, right, is very small. It's like a crack in the sidewalk. You're just stepping right over it. You don't even know it exists. You're just reacting as things come at you. But the more you grow in self-awareness, the larger that space becomes. And the larger that space becomes, you're able in the moment to take a pause. It doesn't take long, but you're just able to say, okay, I can step back and observe myself right now. I can just step back and observe what's going on and choose a different response than the one I used to choose all the time, just reactively, that never worked. We just fall into these repeating self-defeating patterns constantly. But when we develop self-knowledge and the ability to, you know, like what I call push in the clutch, just push in the clutch for a moment, let the engine whine without engaging the transmission and just observe and make a different choice than the one that you used to make that didn't work. And I was just reading an article not long ago in the archives of the Harvard Business Review, but this is more and more becoming the case in a world where we have to collaborate with other people. This is not just my argument. It's the premise of a lot of business consultants. And that is that self-awareness may be the single most important thing a leader or a business person can have. In the absence of self-awareness, you just cannot do your job well. No, there's just not a thing. You can't collaborate well. You can't do anything well. We've all worked with people who lack self-awareness and it's never good, right? And the worst thing in the world is when you have a super talented person that you can't afford to get rid of who has no self-awareness. You know, that happens from time to time. And then you really require to bring in a coach to work with them, to help them develop an awareness of how they interact with other people and what's not working so that you can save them before they drown themselves in their own mess, you know? So self-awareness, absolutely critical in the world of business. I want to segue a little bit. I see this a lot. And we're fortunate at our company, we're working with about the top 5% of financial advisors, independent financial advisors, if you just based it solely on revenue numbers, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're very fortunate. We work with the best of the best. But going back to that three, the achiever, that if they've got to bust through a brick wall, they'll probably go straight through it if they have to, right? Mm -hmm. And so can you speak to what I would call in our industry, something that happens a lot, is people work 50, 60, 70 hours. And we're not coaching them to do that. It's just part of what naturally makes a successful financial advisor. They have this drive to help people to achieve. Can you speak to maybe when people tend to go to that unhealthy area, some ways to get back to a healthy? And I know we're dealing with probably different numbers, but let's just assume those are threes, sevens, and eight, which typically salespeople that are going to be in our industry. Yeah. Well, yes, they all have workaholic tendencies. And three is because they have a need to succeed and they have a need to be admired. That's a very important need for threes. If you ask a three, to be honest, and you ask them, would you rather be liked or admired? They'll say they'd rather be admired. 
Whereas a two, for example, or a six or a nine would say, oh, no, I'd much rather be liked. But threes in particular have a deep need for admiration. What needs to happen for threes, and unfortunately, it often takes a big fall or a big crash before they come to this realization, is that their value in human beings lies in who they are inside. It's not on their achievement. And the problem is in our country, we live in a three country. So this is like, you know, for a three living in our country, it's like a drunk living over the saloon. You know, it's pretty tough to give up, you know? So I think there's a, if I can use the word in a very generic sense, a spiritual journey for threes, which is into the realization that their love for who they are, not for what they do. If they don't figure that out, they will crash and burn eventually or multiple times in smaller ways throughout the course of their life. And it really damages their marriages in a big way. It's very difficult for a three to turn it off between the driveway and the front door. You know, they've got to start the moment they leave the office to decompress. Threes have to learn to stop multitasking all the time, right? They can't be listening to the newest productivity podcast and closing a deal on their cell phone, texting on their iPad, driving the car, eating a sandwich and talking to their wife about a problem one of the kids is having all at the same time and expect that the most important thing in their life, which is their family, is going to appreciate the fact that their ambition seems to take precedence over their relationships. Mm-hmm. Threes have a great deal of trouble with feelings. Number one, feelings tend to slow down progress. They're messy. You know, they require you to deal and address them. So threes are experts at disconnecting from their feelings in service to accomplishing some task that they're in the middle of. Problem is, is that after a while, they can stay disconnected from feelings their own and those of others all the time. They also, by the way, in the office, can run people over because they don't recognize other people's feelings very well. So, you know, I would warn anybody who works for a three not to, you know, not support some new effort or launch that a three is doing. You don't want to not support that in public. Otherwise, you're going to be sidelined. It's not a good idea. In terms of the workaholism, I mean, it's very hard to ratchet it back. They just need to learn how to be in the world, not just do. They're just addicted to doing all the time. Each of these numbers really takes some disciplines to help unwind the excesses that can be found in each of them. What about sevens or eight? And with that same question, just going back to a lot of, yeah. my guess is a lot of the listeners to this podcast are three sevens and eights. Right. Does that differ at all? No, it's the same, but they'll do it for different reasons. A seven will overwork because they want to avoid unpleasant feelings. Anything that will distract them from unpleasant feelings is their friend. They do have to be careful about reframing, right? Because that's oftentimes, you know, just a way of being psychologically evasive of what's happening in the moment. And for sevens, it's very, again, it's very, very difficult to slow down. Now, the difference is, is that they're not as fixated on work as the theater in which they are going to prove themselves necessarily, you know, they just love new adventures in any area of life, you know? So the other night I was in California, I was with a guy who is a billionaire from China. I was at a dinner and I've never met a seven like this in my entire life. I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm in a room with the poster child of all sevens. It's just the most amazing thing I've ever, he can't stop talking about new wines, new trips, new vacations, 
the new motorcycles, the new this, just everything was about, you know, the new, the new escapade. And he never stopped smiling the whole night. I never saw somebody who, it was stunning. Now, interestingly, at the table, he knew what I did for a living. And he is intellectually, like most sevens, very curious, really curious. But so he got a little bit up in my grill. We had an audience of about eight of us around the table. And we got, we were talking about the Enneagram. He said, I'm not afraid of my thing. I said, well, okay, well, I'll tell you what. If I took you to an island right now with nothing on it except you and me, I said in about two or three days, you would start to feel a backlog of all kinds of feelings and anxieties and fears that you have been out of touch with. If I just took away all the wine and the motorcycles and the houses and the cars and the jets, trust me, you'd become just like the rest of us. You would have to start getting in touch with stuff that you didn't even know was there because you've been moving so fast for so long. If you're an eight, eights can learn. Eights can learn, but they're bulldozers, not diplomats, you know, and they have to learn that they are so intense. They carry so much energy that it's intimidating and overwhelming to the vast majority of people. They actually exude a lot of anger. You can just, it radiates them off them. It's right beneath the surface. You can just feel it. When they're unhealthy, they have a sort of a menacing feeling about them, actually, when they're unhealthy. I once heard someone say that they were talking about Frank Sinatra, and they, was in a, and they said, and he was a little guy, too. This has nothing to do with stature, you know, physical stature. They said, you could feel Frank Sinatra walk into a room 15 minutes before he got there. That's how much energy he had. And it was this sort of intensity. When AIDS can begin to learn that, again, like wands, their way isn't the only way that other people need to be attended to, that they have to be part of a team before they can lead a team, you know, Mm -hmm. that they need to take into account the sensibilities of other human beings. So here's the thing about eights, by the way, unlike threes and sevens sometimes. Well, this is true. I should say threes and sevens, ones, not so much. Eights, when they let loose at a party or they're just having fun, they bring all the same energy and intensity to that that they do to work. <laughs> you know, these people have intense vacations, you know, and they're wonderful. You know, they're powerful, very, very powerful leaders. But, you know, we all struggle with work in different ways. And three, seven, eights tend to be just such hard drivers that they get themselves into trouble. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. All right, buddy. Well, are you good to roll on to some rapid fire questions here as we get I'll do my best. I mean, is this the money round? This is it, man. This is the one. I want to hear a bell. Okay. Yeah, I I think you're good. I think you're good. All right. So let's go with the first one. When you hear the word successful, who's the first person you think of and why? Oh, first person. uh, Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist. The very first person who's my, if you've ever met, he is the most disciplined, optimistic, but not foolishly optimistic, not Peter Pan optimistic. He, I think, really believes in the basic goodness of all people and believes in the best about the world, but he's not naive. I think he's a remarkable human being. I, I'll get off of this, by the way, in a minute, and I'll think of 10 others that I think of more, but he's the first face that came to mind. I'm just surprised I know who Yo-Yo Ma is. Yeah, well, uh, One of my good yeah. friends, Ryan, pulled up his album, and it is... I bet you it was Goat Rodeo. What's that? Maybe it was Goat Rodeo. We did it done here in Nashville. It was obviously cello, but I don't know well, which one. He, maybe the, he's the, probably the finest cellist alive. Well, now you know Yo-Yo Ma, so you just went way up in my book, man. <laughs> Not that you weren't already up yeah. there before. 
I'm a four. I know about the artists. <laughs> What's your favorite book you've ever read and why? Ooh, gosh. Maybe one, Wendell Berry's Jaber Crow, just a genius American novelist, essayist, and poet from Kentucky. He paints portraits of human beings in the most remarkable way. I'd add the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky. The Russians are like nobody else. Dostoevsky can get beside the thoughts of a human being and just reveal the thought patterns of people that are so, they're just spookily accurate and beautifully written. Hmm. Um, Recent books that I've enjoyed, by the way, Mindsight, because I read business books or I read books about neurobiology and neuropsychiatry. Mindsight is a fascinating book. I really recommend it for people who are actually doing work around the Enneagram. It's a great compliment. This is Mindsight. Mindsight, yeah. So different from Mindset, Carol Dweck. Right, it's Mindsight. Huh, okay. We'll add that in the show notes. Do you have a book you've gifted a lot over the years? Yeah, mine. <laughs> oh, mine. Oh, my gosh. Gifted over the years. Christmas, I always give away copies of a book by Oscar Schwelo called Mr. Ives' Christmas. Beautiful, beautiful story about forgiveness, a shorter novel about forgiveness. So that's one. I'm trying to think of other books that I tend to give away. Obviously, Jaber Crow, the one I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. I love Churchill, so I'll give away the biography of Churchill as often as I can to people who are ready for it. Just a tremendously fascinating leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's enough for now. Okay, cool. This will be an interesting one with your background okay. in psychology. So let's just go back to the time in your life when you think you needed the most advice. So whether that was your 20-year-old self, 30-year-old self, 40-year-old self, can you just maybe speak to that time in your life, how old you were, where you were at, and the advice you would go back and give yourself now? Oh, yikes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was saying that one of my greatest regrets, and I try not to have regrets, but if I'm struck by one, it's this. I didn't have a great mentor when I was a young man. My father was otherwise occupied with his own problems. And I really found myself swimming around in a lot of confusion about who I was, what I was called to do and to be. And I once heard a quote from someone, a novelist that just, I don't remember now, but I remember reading it and being so struck. He said, a young man who doesn't have an older man who admires him is impoverished. Mm. And I thought that is a remarkable statement for its veracity. I mean, it's just true that a young man needs an older man who admires him and admires his gifts and wants to help him find his way in the world. So I would actually encourage anyone in your audience who is, let's say, over the age of 35 or 40, that you ought to have someone in their life, a younger person in their life, that they recognize and connect to naturally, that they can help find their way in the world. It's a great service to younger people when they have that. And to your women in the audience to find a younger woman who has the gifts and abilities, or particularly, I would say, to your women in the audience, that you know, women need guidance in the workplace simply because the workplace to this day remains a very difficult place for women of talent. For example, can I just make a really quick tangent? Yeah, go for it. There's no harder thing in the world for anyone in business than to be a woman who's an eight. If you're a hard-driving, accomplished, get-it-done, bulldozer, you know, tell the truth at all costs, give it, you know, and you're a guy, guess what? You're a hero. And if you're a woman, you know what they're called. Mm -hmm. And it's not good. And it's a terrible disservice. And it's really 
drained us or taken away lots of women who have tremendous gifts from exercising them in, in business settings. We just need to get out of their way. Guys need to be just a little bit more self-confidence to allow those women to do their jobs in the way that they were designed to do them. Let's go back to the question again. Now that I've gone off on that tangent, what was the question again? I think you answered it. It was the advice you would give your younger self. So it sounded like you would... Yeah, get a mentor. Yeah. Find a mentor. Or they used to say in the financial services industry in New York, find your rabbi inside that can help you find your way in the world and particularly inside the setting of your business. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you ever outgrow the need for that, really. But you're so open to formation at that point in your life. You You look in your rearview mirror and there's just not a lot of wreckage yet, usually. Yeah. Uh, There's not a lot of problems to look back on. And it's a magical moment. Yeah. Awesome. I love that advice. All right. Last question. You've just, I mean, you're a pro, man. It's a lightning round. I can can (laughs) out. What is the one piece of advice you can share with the listeners that has led to your success? Mm. Honestly, I would say develop knowledge across a broad array of disciplines specialization is okay. It's a good thing. It's good to have a deep well of information about a particular area. But learn widely. Read a lot. Read a lot. And then read more. Read every genre. I have a friend of mine who was a very successful guy who owned maybe 50 or 60 television stations in one of the bigger markets in the country. And he got to about 65 or 67. And I happened to notice one day that he was carrying around a list of 100 books. And he said, my aim is to read all 100 of these books before I die. And I said, wow. He said, yeah, I spent all of my life reading basically around business and maybe history books. He said, but I had no idea how much I could learn from other disciplines, other areas that I could have applied in the world of business. You know, So for example, if you read a book by Yo-Yo Ma, you might think, oh, what does that got to do with business? Well, if you've got a, an imagination and you're a good leader, you'll be able to find principles inside of what he does and what he knows that can be applied in your context. If you read Cicero or Marcus Aurelius, you're going to similarly find lots of information in there that is applicable in your marriage, in your friendships, in the organizations that you serve. So when you can begin to find universal patterns and ideas that overlap, you know you're on to something important that you need to know about. And you know, often I meet young, I hate to stereotype here, but say young millennials that have come out of programs in colleges where they're highly specialized. And between that and Facebook or Instagram and other social media platforms, you don't actually have to interact with somebody face-to-face very much. You go out to dinner with these folks, and they don't know what to talk about. They just look at you like, I can, you want to talk about, you know, the software I've designed to do X or about financial stuff. I could do that, but I really don't know anything else because I've specialized the last four years in college. And then I've been in business for the last four years doing the same thing. And I just don't have anything else to say. And I think that's terribly sad. Yeah. There was a study. I won't remember it. Maybe we'll throw it in the show notes, but it even talked about engineers, very technical discipline. And it showed job advancement in the engineer sector. And it all came down to best person-to-person skills, being able to interact with others, not so much the technical discipline of the job. I'm just telling you that I'm not sure. Between self-awareness, and self-awareness is what will create the natural climate or soil from which will grow good interpersonal relationships or the best that you're capable of having. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the skill to understand, get along and empathize with other people, to be able to see the world through their eyes and, or to get into their shoes, you're destined for other shallow relationships, relationships that don't function optimally in the workplace. And you're kind of destined for loneliness and a degree of shallowness that nobody wants to live with. So yeah, I would rather have a guy around the shop that had good people skills, good soft skills than somebody who, you know, I had to spend a ton of time with that wasn't so good in that department, but, you know, did their job or were competent within their job. And that's why they get kept around. So I don't see any reasons why businesses can't have both most of the time. Well, Ian, this has been awesome. I'm so thankful that you're able to carve out some time for my audience here today. I delight, yeah. It's been enlightening as I knew it would be. So thanks for sharing the story of the Enneagram. And we'll make sure, as far as the show notes, we'll make sure to get the assessment where everybody can go out and figure out what their number is. That's an awesome journey to start. And then obviously go pick up your book, The Road Back to You as well, if they want to dig in and dive deeper in the Enneagram. Absolutely. That'd be great. All right, Ian. Thank you. Take care, friend. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. For access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from our show's guests, visit bradleyjohnson.com. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners. It really does help. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. The information and opinions contained here are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.